Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the American cook and socialite Lucy Hicks Anderson. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. They are the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include discussions of historical transphobia, including Lucy's being publicly outed and prosecuted in relation to being trans, and there'll also be some misgendering of Lucy in quotes. There'll also be discussions of historical racism, including the use of outdated language for black people in quotes, and there'll also be the use of outdated language for intersex people in quotes. This episode also includes discussion of a non-consensual medical examination, discussions of sex work, including prosecution and imprisonment of sex workers, brief mention of death in a car accident, and discussions of conscription during World War II. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out the rest of our content. Before we get started talking about Lucy's life, I wanted to talk a little bit about the context of the sources we have on Lucy's life. Oh yes, the lit review. It's a very short lit review. Lucy was a trans woman. She was born in 1886. In 1945, she was publicly outed and she was tried for several crimes relating to the fact that she lived her whole adult life as a woman. So most of what we know about Lucy's life comes from contemporary newspaper reports, particularly in the context of her trial, both what other people said about her in her trial and also what she said about her own life story in the trial. So I I just want you to keep that in mind as we talk about Lucy, that most of it comes in that context. On the note of sources, I'd also like to thank Marsha Stock and the people at the Museum of Ventura County for compiling and scanning a lot of newspaper articles and some oral histories about Lucy and emailing those to me. Oh, wow. That was very nice of them. Did you legitimately just email them and be like, hey, I hear that Lucy lived in your county. Have you got anything? There was one master's thesis, I believe, which referred to the stuff in this museum. And so I emailed them and I was like, you must have this stuff, right? And they're like, oh yeah, we have actually scanned it. Here you go. Have a PDF. Convenient. So that was very nice of them. And without them, this episode would be like 20 minutes long. I am very excited for this because I've heard of Lucy many times and seen the same information said about her without any real source attached to Mm. it. So I feel like this will actually be quite an expansion on what is generally publicly available about her. And that's quite neat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that is quite neat. So the people in the archive sent me two separate collections of sources, and one collection of sources is already just available online on their website, but Mm -hmm. I hadn't found it, and the other I believe they have digitally, but it's not available online. So I think even though some of it was already available online, it wasn't readily discoverable. Yeah. Even by me, who was actively trying to do research on Lucy. Mm. But even just the master's thesis, right? Like, even that's not generally information that people are going to uncover and read when they're just looking for easily available content about someone on the internet. Like, just Mm. in terms of, like, Wikipedia and, you know, calls on news sites and stuff like that. Like, I'm thinking of kind of that level of of easily available to the public and to a not necessarily history research literate public. Yeah, somebody who's just sat down and Googled Lucy Hicks Anderson to see what's up. Yeah. yeah. How's your geography? Oh, are God. we in America again? We're in the USA. Ah, uh, yes. We are in Kentucky. What's Kentucky? There's <laughs> chicken there. <laughs> What's Kentucky? Okay. It's a state. <laughs> Where's Kentucky? Uh, in the South. It's in what Americans call the South, which is on the eastern side of the country. But kind of in the middle. But kind, but of, kind, in the kind south. of in the Kind of in the South, kind of in the middle. Yes. All right. All right. <laughs> and there's chicken there. And they have chicken there. So Lucy was born in 1886 in Wadi, Kentucky, probably on the 5th of September. All right, I was going to ask more questions about the chicken, but we can move on to talking about the subject of this episode, I guess. I don't have any research notes on Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. I thought because she was a cook, maybe there would be chicken content. No, I don't have any specific records of her having cooked chicken. I'm sure she did cook chicken. Okay. So Lucy was the daughter of Nancy and William Lawson, who were both black servants in the household of a white farmer, George Waddy. So he owned the town. Ah, uh, so his family is the family that the town's named after, yeah. Okay. How big is this town? Very small. Okay. Despite being assigned male at birth, by her own account given at her trial, Lucy tells us that from early childhood she would only dress in girls' clothes. At nine, her mother took her to the local doctor, who told Nancy that Lucy was, quote, more of a girl than a boy. 
Nancy in turn told Lucy that there's nothing to do. You're a girl and you're not like other little girls and raised Lucy as a girl. I feel like we had exactly this conversation last time where it's like, if true, that's nice, but also that's the story that it's necessary to put forward in the trial. Yeah. Yeah, and there's very little information available to us beyond Lucy's own testimony about what her childhood did look like. We have the 1900 census, which is when Lucy would have been 13, and she's listed on that census as male and still listed by her birth name. Okay. On the flip side, she does also maintain a relationship with her siblings throughout her life, or at least with one of her sisters, don't know about the others, who obviously like interacts with her as a woman and seems to see mm-hmm. her as a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she definitely did have familial support to some degree. Just going off Irene's comment about this being compared to last time when we were talking about Ewan, I assume we'll get into this so you can just shut this down if you want, but I would assume that different issues are at stake in that trial than in Ewan's. And so the incentive to lie about her childhood might be different or not even necessarily a major factor. Yeah, I think we can probably get into that a bit more once we talk about the trial when we reach that point in her life. But yeah, definitely I would say the trial has different things going on than Ewan's trial, though there are also definitely similarities. I mean, I trust that if Lucy was in line to a barony or something, you would have mentioned it by now. <laughs> Lucy well, is not in line to a barony or a baronetcy. <laughs> I've <forgotten> that. <laughs> Lucy left school around age 15 to work in domestic service, and at 20, she moved across the country to Pecos, Texas, and took up a job in a hotel. By the time the next census was taken in 1910, she's listed as a 23-year-old woman named Lucy. Good for her. So we're skipping through Lucy's early life quite fast. On October 2nd, 1920, now in her early 30s, Lucy married a man named Clarence Hicks in New Mexico. She married under the name Lucy Beasley, although where this new surname came from, I don't know, and I haven't found any other record of her under this name. What were her parents' surname? Lawson. Lawson, okay. And in that 1910 census, she's listed as Lucy Lawson. So I don't know why she's called Lucy Beasley here. I did see somebody speculate that she had another marriage before Clarence Hicks, but I couldn't find any record of that marriage if it ever happened. She may have just picked up a different surname for any number of other reasons. Mm. Okay. Do we know anything about Clarence? I don't know much about Clarence, I'm afraid. Clarence is also African-American. That's the only fact I have about Clarence before he married Lucy. (laughs) He's a guy. He's just a man, some dude. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Good. A month after the wedding, the local paper ran an article with the headline, Negro makes discovery that bride, that's in scare quotes, is a man. Oh, okay. The article recounts how after their marriage, Clarence complained to the police that Lucy was acting suspiciously, and she was subsequently arrested and, quote, confessed to being a man and took delight in the deception practiced on Hicks. All right, well, that sounds unlikely. (laughs) That sounds, yeah, suspicious. Yeah, and I'm not exactly clear what the circumstances were here of what happened. So I'll tell you a little bit more about it, but we have very limited information about this part of Lucy's life, because she only really becomes a more major public figure later on in the 1940s. During her trial in the 1940s, Lucy commented briefly on this arrest, only to say that it happened and that she was acquitted of the charge of masquerading as a woman, but we have no more detail than that about the legal side of it. Okay. Okay, so she got off somehow. She got off, we don't know how she got off. Following this, Lucy moved again to the town of Oxnard, about 100 kilometres west of Los Angeles. Do you know where Los Angeles is? Yeah, you know, on the west bit there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere on the west. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Near I assume. California. In California. In California. <laughs> there you go, now we know. <laughs> so I assume Clarence is just kind of gone now. Well, I don't know for certain. Okay. So you would assume from that sequence of events that Clarence is gone, but it does seem that Clarence went with her and they lived together for about another six years. Oh, all right. (laughs) Because in 1929, Lucy divorced Clarence on the grounds of desertion. Okay. And the divorce papers state that he left her in Oxnard in July 1926. And there's also mentions in those divorce papers of how other Oxnard residents were asked to help find Clarence because he couldn't be found for the divorce. And specific names are given of people who might have known where Clarence was, which kind of implies that Clarence was around in Oxnard and did develop some connections in Oxnard before leaving Lucy. So are we to suspect that, like, I don't know, they had a fight, Clarence reported her to the police, then he was like, oh, wait, no, let's actually just make up, forget about that, guys. Lucy's fine. And then they moved towns because that had happened. We can speculate. I have no idea what Uh, happened. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of possible stories you could think of about what happened in that relationship, when and if Clarence knew Lucy was trans, how and why they moved, but there's so little information. Mm, yeah. That said, we're going to talk about Lucy's life now in Oxnard, and Clarence doesn't really wait to mention at any point. Clarence is functionally gone from her life when she arrives in Oxnard, as far as we can see from any comments in the paper about her or anything like that. So Lucy quickly made a name for herself in Oxnard as a cook. She won many contests for various recipes, including fig jam, fruitcake, bread rolls, custard pies, and other baked goods. I love bread rolls so much. Good, good. I want to eat her award-winning bread rolls. I was really hoping when, like, I was getting the material from the um, museum of Ventura County that they would have some of her recipes because there were specific mentions in articles about her of how other women used to, like, come over to Lucy's house to borrow recipes if they were, like, having a party or something. So her recipes were, like, written down and well-known at the time. So I hope someone in Oxnard is just, like, still making them. Yeah, surely they're around somewhere then. Yeah, if you're in Oxnard and you have, like, a recipe book your grandma wrote, just flip through and see if you have anything called, like, Lucy's Custard Tart. Yeah. Yeah. We should go there and buy local cookbooks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Both like historical society fundraiser cookbooks and stuff. Yeah, we should buy those and see if we get any Lucy recipes. Yeah, yeah. I reckon they must be in those kind of cookbooks. If you're lucky, they have a name, but it often doesn't tell you who that person was. It's just like, you know. Maud's scones. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But if we found that Lucy's whatever, obviously that would be great. And if someone had happened to write, you know, Lucy Hicks's scones, that would be incredible. Yes. Yes. As well as cooking, Lucy also worked as a housekeeper for several prominent Oxnard families. Mabel Craddock, a member of one of the families Lucy worked for, recalled that in her house, Lucy was, quote, just part of the family, more or less. And in particular, remembers Lucy helping the bridesmaids dress for Mabel's sister's wedding. That said, there are obvious elements of race and class at play in how Lucy interacted with these families. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I was kind of going to say every time somebody says, oh, she's just part of the family about their domestic servants, that's, you know. Yeah, so Mabel adds the caveat to that quote of course she didn't eat with us well there you go so no she's yeah. not part of your family <laughs> yeah how many of your other family members are you making eat and separate yeah yeah despite this divide lucy did become a prominent member of the oxnard community when world war ii began for example she threw going away parties for soldiers heading off to war she supported their families as they grieved if the soldiers died and she hosted a lot of fundraising events for the red cross and similar organizations to support the war effort so are we learning about that from the papers or okay. yeah so there's a lot of those articles in the papers that just sort of say, you know, this party will be on at this date at this time, hostess is Lucy Hicks, or that kind of thing. Yeah. She was incidentally also an inventor. Oh, Oh, okay, Lucy. (laughs) What did she invent? Uh, So she invented what was called an automatic gasoline vending machine, which I think is just a petrol pump where you put the money in at the pump, which didn't exist at the time, and according to the LA Times, caught the interest of manufacturing companies. That seems like a useful thing. Do we have that now? I don't think we have that in Melbourne very prominently, but I think in a lot of places they do have that where you can pay with your card at the machine without going into the petrol station. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I think for generally for us, it's not a thing. Yeah. I was going to say, I always have to pay at the man, but maybe I've just never read the sign that's like, tap your card here if you don't want to go inside. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's a sign that I just always go inside. Uh, yeah. I like the expression pay at the man. <laughs> at the counter, at the one counter. could say. <laughs> or pay the man. In the shop. <laughs> no, at the man. Pay at the man. <laughs> yeah. I just pictured you like feeding bills into some guy's mouth like when he's trying to deposit cash (laughs) anyway lucy so when lucy had saved up enough money from her work as a housekeeper and cook she bought a property near china alley which was oxnard's red light district which began operating as a brothel and bar her business was very successful and she would go on to buy up around half of the surrounding block this was during prohibition when alcohol was illegal in america and on october 4th 1927 as part of a regular crackdown on sex work and alcohol in oxnard Lucy was arrested for both alcohol and sex work related offences. She pled guilty and paid a $200 fine. I guess she did in fact do both of those things. Yeah, she did do these things, yes. Is that a lot of money? I don't think it's a crazy amount of money because this is the first of many times that she gets arrested for this kind of thing and pays this kind of fine and then just continues to go about her life. So it's just like as a brothel owner... 
a regular $200 fine is written into your business expenses. I guess so, yeah, to some degree. The tone of the reporting on these trials, although sometimes it's quite moralizing and so on, is often also quite flippant. There's one example in the 1930s where she was briefly jailed for similar crimes, and she began phoning the judge, Frank Pettis, from jail daily to let him know that she didn't like being in jail and she would like to go home. (laughs) (laughs) And when the jail took away her phone privileges, she started writing him daily letters. On the same line. Hey, Frank, can I go home now? Hey, Frank. Yeah. (laughs) Guess who? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I wonder what those conversations were like. I can't imagine Frank really listened for long on the phone. (laughs) Jolly was probably like, oh, it's Lucy again. I need to tell him to stop letting her call me. (laughs) There's also some suggestion in the papers at the time and later oral histories that Lucy was getting off quite lightly on these various charges due to her connections in the town. I came across several accusations made at the time, though never proven, that Lucy and others selling alcohol or engaged in sex work in Oxnard paid protection money to police chief Harry Johnson. That sounds very plausible. Lucy always denied it and it was never proven, but I wouldn't be shocked if it was true. I mean, frankly, what is paying a $200 fine every six months or something if not protection money i think that was actually what lucy said when she was accused of this one she was like i don't pay any protection money except to the judge when i go to court Mm. yeah like (laughs) that's just what that system inherently is yeah yeah i mean especially when you put it the way you did of like you factored this into your budget Mm. yeah there was also the claim that i came across several times but also couldn't verify that on one occasion lucy was bailed out of jail by charles donlan a prominent local banker who for a time employed lucy as a housekeeper because he was hosting a party that night and he needed lucy to cater it that sounds plausible also sounds plausible unverified but plausible also sounds plausibly like a local myth yeah does make me want those recipes yeah more but (laughs) just in case you're in jail ever no no i just you know they must be pretty good if you're willing to bail someone out of jail for them those must be some pretty good buns yeah yeah there was also another comment i came across in a later oral history i think that said you know every morning there were police cars up and down the street outside lucy's house not because she was under arrest but just because they came in every morning for her coffee so Hmm. How small is this community? I don't have a number for the like 1930s and 40s, which is the time we're discussing, but in 1950, there are 23,000 people living in Oxnard. Okay. okay. So it's not big, but it's not tiny. Like small enough that Lucy is like a person to these systems. Yeah, yeah. Like Lucy pretty regularly appears in court and it's apparent that kind of everyone involved knows her. Mm-hmm. I feel like at the point where the cops come around to her house every day for the coffee and it's widely known that she is getting off lightly for the crime, it does just sound <laughs> kind of procedural. Yeah. Where yeah. they're like, you're running a bar, give us the 200 bucks. Yeah. But like, I don't know, that's kind of also a version of events that seems like it would go into the kind of urban myth mm. about her. Yeah, like it does make a much more fun story for the people of Oxnard telling this story today than like, oh yeah, so this black woman was routinely arrested and, you know, constantly in trouble with the police and this made her life really difficult. Mm. It's much easier to be like, yeah, like they were always around for coffee and she was just getting bailed out to make a nice dinner. Mm. Oh yeah, Yeah. I'm not suggesting they were like friendly or anything like that, just that they knew who she was. Yeah, and they did know who she was, yeah. Mm. Overall, I'd say Lucy's repeated arrests don't seem to have really affected her social standing in Oxnard. Mentions of her in the paper pretty consistently alternate between reports of arrests and reports of parties she's hosting, fundraising efforts she's a part of, cooking contests she's winning. Even in 1935, what is referred to as a miscellaneous shower held by three other Oxnard women in her honour. <laughs> miscellaneous shower, I love that. Just for being a good person. <laughs> nice. I think we should start that again. Yeah. Like baby showers, that's not... That's not where it's Too at. specific, yeah. Yeah, it's not a birthday party. It's just a miscellaneous shower because they just like Lucy. <laughs> In June 1944, Lucy married again to Air Force Corporal Reuben Anderson. They don't seem to have had much chance to spend time together. Reuben had 21 days leave that June to visit and marry Lucy before he returned to his base station in New York. So did they know each other before that or did he show up at the start of his leave and they got married by the end of it? I don't know. I'm not clear. Lucy did have another fiancé not long before that in the early 40s who she lived with who um, was killed in a car accident. Oh. So she obviously wasn't in like a years long relationship with Reuben. I mean. Uh, yeah. Okay. Maybe she was. Um, <laughs> but probably not. Yeah, probably not. Enough. But maybe she was. So yeah. I don't know. The first mention of Reuben in terms of the newspapers and those sources is when they get engaged. Okay. 
Now we're entering the court case phase of the episode. Just a heads up. On October 4th, 1945, Lucy was again picked up by the police. A soldier who had visited her brothel had caught an STI, and so police had ordered a medical examination of all the women who worked there. Lucy always maintained that while she ran the brothel, she herself never took clients, but nonetheless, she was also made to undergo an examination. And Dr. Hilary Mangan, who did the examination, reported that he found that she was, quote, a man normal in every way. Two weeks later, on the 19th of October, Lucy was arrested on charges of perjury, specifically that she married Reuben despite knowing that she was, quote, not a female person capable of being the bride. So I like the implication that some people might have married Reuben in spite of not being a female person, but did not know. I guess that might be making room for, like, intersex people or yeah. cis women who can't have kids or something like that. I don't really know. <laughs> Lucy would ultimately be tried on three separate counts. One is perjury. One is fraud for collecting allotment checks, an allowance received by soldiers' wives, as Reuben's wife. And lastly, evading the draft, which existed for men her age at the time. The court process is quite complicated. There's a lot of back and forth of, you know, bails and going in and out of jail and going between these different trials. So I'm not going to necessarily tell you every single step of the process and every single time she was called to testify, but we will discuss each of the three trials more generally. After her arrest on the 19th of October, Lucy spent the night in the men's section of the county jail. She apparently didn't strongly object to the change of section, having previously been in the women's section when she'd been in jail, but she did object when they tried to force her to change into men's clothing. The following day, three women footed the bill for Lucy's bail, including her niece, Willie Mae Gale, and she was released awaiting trial. The next day, Lucy was picked up by the FBI in order to be tried for evading the draft. So that one's tried on a federal level, whereas her perjury trial is happening on a county level. This trial about evading the draft was less about Lucy's gender than it was about her age. Rather than arguing that she was a woman and therefore ineligible for the draft, her defense argued that she was too old to be prosecuted for draft evasion. On her marriage license to Reuben, Lucy had given her age as 42, giving her birth year as 1901, and then making her 43 at the time of her arrest and therefore eligible for the draft. In court in Los Angeles, Lucy admitted that she was, in fact, 59. <laughs> was quite a difference. <laughs> it is quite a claim. <laughs> yeah. Like, how old do you have to be to be too old for the draft? Technically, 59 is still young enough for the draft. Oh, wow. I think up to 65, you could still be drafted. Oh, that's wild. But um, the US Commissioner David B. Head, who was on this trial, dismissed the case of draft evasion, explaining that even though you could be drafted into your 60s, people generally weren't and it had never been their policy to prosecute people of that age who didn't sign up for the draft since it was so unlikely they would ever actually be recruited. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So that was just So missed. you said in their 60s, but she's saying she's only 59. 59. Yeah. So, so when does it stop being likely that they'll actually recruit someone? I don't know what the number on that was exactly. Yeah. I don't know the exact ages, but throughout World War II, the USA had been expanding and expanding the age of the draft. And yeah. they'd recently... As they ran out of people. <laughs> yeah. And so they'd recently expanded it to include older people. Okay. And whatever that bracket was, like 50 to 65 or maybe 45 to 65, Lucy fell into that bracket, which had kind of been recently included in the okay. draft, but hadn't yet been um, expected to do anything. So even if she's not in her 60s, she's still in like the upper end of that. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Yeah. Whereas if she'd been 42, I think she would have been in the previous lot and they would have said, well, you've been eligible for quite a while and right. should have actually okay. been acting on that. That's um, just so old to draft people. Yeah. Like imagine if five years ago our parents had been drafted us. That's insane. Yeah. That would be pretty, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One could say the draft at any age is pretty uh, cooked. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like it becomes increasingly cooked the like closer to retirement age you become. Yeah. yeah. The less likely the people you're drafting are to be like physically fit. You know, similarly, we shouldn't start drafting 10 year olds so just remind me like how do we know her actual age like which one of these things is a lie the closest piece of information we have to giving us her actual age is the census from 1900 uh-huh. which gives her age as 13 okay which puts her as being born in 1886 obviously depending on how you look if you're 42 or if you're 59 maybe you can fudge that a bit but if you're 13 or you're two <laughs> <laughs> you can't really fake that yeah you can't really fake that <laughs> So that's why I would believe 1886 is her birth year over yeah. any of the other years she gives throughout her life. Yeah. So she's aged gracefully. She's yeah. aged very well. <laughs> Good for her. She's generally described as being like a very well-dressed, very kind mm. of, not extravagantly dressed, but quite like. 
well put together. Well put together woman, and I assume also probably quite a well made up woman. Yeah. So I think that's probably a factor in just adjusting what age she looks like. So I did want to mention regarding Lucy's age that, you know, I've given two separate ages for her here, 42, the one she claimed when she got married, and 59, apparently her actual age. She did give a different age again when she married Clarence. I don't know exactly why she changes her age every time she does paperwork. I suspect it could be to avoid her birth records Mm. being tracked down. Yeah, Yeah. I was going to say, but when we were talking about her having this surname we'd never heard of when she got married. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could just be to avoid anyone going back to Kentucky and going, wait a second. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. When asked about her age in her perjury trial and why she lied about it, she simply said, a woman isn't supposed to have an age after 40. (laughs) So that's her justification. Back in Ventura, the county seat which governed Oxnard, on the 20th of November, Lucy was tried for perjury. And this is a much more gender-focused trial Mm -hmm. than her draft evasion trial. The Oxnard Press Courier, which is one of the local Oxnard papers, referred to the jury having to decide, quote, whether Lucy Hicks shall be declared officially to be a man or woman. So they very much saw it as being her gender on trial. Okay. So in some ways that actually is quite similar to Ewan's trial in terms of what they're there to do, allegedly. Yeah. 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 Medical testimony made up the majority of the trial. The prosecution aimed to prove that Lucy had, quote, all the external organs of a male and could not be termed a woman, either physically or by common sense. So the prosecution called a total of five doctors to testify regarding Lucy's sex. One was Dr. Hilary Mangan, who had examined her on October 4th, and the other four had all examined Lucy at the time of her arrest on October 19th. Why had they needed four doctors to do that? C. Riley Snorton, who writes about Lucy's story in his book Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity, describes the calling of so many medical witnesses as overcompensation. In the context of the trial, it seems like an attempt to win over the jury just with an overwhelming amount of medical evidence. But in the context of calling all those doctors at the time of the arrest, it suggests to me some level of disbelief that someone assigned male at birth could live as a woman for so long, or possibly just sensationalistic voyeurism. Yeah, yeah. It is very interesting to hear that and also what happened in Ewan Forbes' trial and compare it to Harry Crawford, Mm. who we did an episode on a while back in our little spate of trans court case episodes, (laughs) where the point of his trial was not to determine his gender, but a doctor did examine him to determine his sex in the proceedings, and it was literally like 10 seconds a glance down the pants kind of thing, and that was it. And it's really interesting to see in other court cases that were not that far removed from that one in time, Mm -hmm. although these are in three completely different parts of the world, that other doctors feel the need to go to like a much greater extent to, mm-hmm. to prove that information. Obviously, in Ewan Forbes' case, there's like a lot of stuff going on with class privilege. So he's yeah. able to like muster that. But, you know, like, nevertheless. Yeah, yeah. And I think probably part of it is just that Lucy and Ewan are being tried to prove their mm. sex or to prove their gender, however you want to put that. Whereas for Harry, it was more an incidental mm. part of his trial that was just kind of being used to discredit him as a person. But the fact that these communities would think that this is something that could be debated for that amount of time. Yeah. Even. You yeah. Know, I, I remember reading about Ewan Forbes and like, yeah, they did a medical examination and the fact that he had what they described as being roughly like female genitals just wasn't that big of a deal in the context of the whole case. Yeah. yeah. Like for you, and it was very much they did a medical examination and they were like, seems female, and Ewan was able to like challenge that. Yeah, um, yeah. With his audacious fake testicle plot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I might talk a little bit about what Lucy's defense said so Mm. we can have a bit of a... Yeah, we can have more. Yeah, I feel like that will influence that discussion. I did want to say a little bit more about the arguments made by the prosecution first, actually. Running with the idea that Lucy was a man fooling people into thinking she was a woman, which we kind of already saw quite early on Mm. in her life when, like, it was published that she'd married Clarence despite not being a cis woman. So the prosecution also used scaremongering tactics, which would be pretty familiar to us today. District Attorney Arthur Waite's closing statement was to ask, does the jury wish to allow Hicks to continue to live as a woman, to violate the sanctity of homes, to associate with women in restrooms? Oh, okay. So America's been on that train for a while then. America's been on that train for uh, almost 80 years. Mm. More than 80 years. And they particularly drummed up a lot of concern about the fact that Lucy was very much involved in like helping women dress and Mm. that kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. The defense responded to that with the argument that, quote, even if Lucy Hicks is found to be a man, which we'll discuss they did dispute, she had no intention of defrauding the public and was harming nobody by living as a woman. Much of the defense's argument, however, rested on a claim that Lucy may have been intersex. Uh, so we can yes. compare this a bit more to Ewan. So oh, when- Mamma mia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When she was examined by Dr. Mangan on October 4th, Lucy had requested a private examination away from the other women from her brothel being examined, stating that she was, as she said, a hermaphrodite. The doctors who examined her, however, found no evidence of this. Gynecologist Dr. William T. Rothwell, a witness called by the defense, argued that Lucy, quote, could be of dual sex, and that, considering her story, I believe her to contain both female and male characteristics, with the female predominant. Dr. Rothwell did also note, however, that had he not known Lucy's story, that is, had he not known that she lived her life as a woman, he would have assumed she was male. So that suggests to me these claims that Lucy was intersex come not from anything physical noticed when she was examined, but rather from the assumption that nobody assigned male at birth could live their life as a woman without an underlying biological cause. I feel like there's almost an element there of people being like, but surely we would have noticed. Yeah, and I think that is definitely a factor. And that was what I was thinking when they called like five doctors in. Yeah, they're like, can you see anything here? There's no way we've been fooled this whole time kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, and I think there's one of the newspaper articles from one of the Oxnard papers that like pretty explicitly says that. It kind of says you hear this thing happening in a big city, but in a small town where we know each other, it's very surprising that Lucy lived as a woman for so long and none of us knew. Mm. And we'll talk about later on if none of them actually knew or not, but that's what the papers say. Lucy herself, when asked by the prosecution, in what way are you a woman, responded, I'm a woman internally. And again, this could be understood either as a reference to the possibility of her being intersex or to the idea that she was a woman psychologically, despite being assigned male at birth. We do also see her giving more tongue-in-cheek responses to this question. When asked what part of her body she considered feminine, she apparently responded, my chest, before pulling open her shirt to flash the courtroom. (laughs) (laughs) People are all so bold in court. (laughs) They really are. I'd be so scared. It's like, okay, let me go, please. In her own testimony, Lucy generally focused on the idea that it was not her physical characteristics, but rather her lived experience that made her a woman. Good job, Lucy. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, true though. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a significant paragraph of her testimony, which was published in the papers that I will read to you in full. And she says, I defy any doctor in the world to prove that I am not a woman. I have lived, dressed, acted just what I am, a woman. It's only petty maliciousness that is trying to cause me heartache and harm. If they would devote the same amount of energy to local problems that are hurting the community, it would be much better. I've lived a good life and a Christian life, and though I am a Christian, I reverence all religious faiths. I've lived a good citizen for many years in this town, and I'm going to die a good citizen, but I'm going to die a woman. I have nothing to add to that. That was incredible. Yeah. Get wrecked and let this woman be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I especially like the part where she's like, wow, wouldn't it be great if we actually focused on issues within the community that were a problem instead of on me? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely true. I also like that that speech was published in the paper pretty much without comment. Cool. They were just like, here, here's what Lucy had to say. And they published that. Mm. So what's the general tone of newspaper articles at the time within Oxnard? Hold that thought because I will talk about that a lot. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) On November 27th, after deliberating for two hours, the jury found Lucy guilty of perjury. Great. And on December 20th, she began a one-year prison sentence with a 10-year probation. So, like, what is perjury? Sorry, I didn't define perjury. (laughs) Perjury is basically lying on the oath. She signed her marriage license. Oh, as a woman. As a woman. Okay. And they're saying that she's lied under oath. Reuben wasn't present at Lucy's perjury trial, being stationed in New York at the time. But she had mentioned during the trial that he had written to her to say that, quote, regardless of what all the trouble was, we are married and he loves me and intends to stay with me until death do us part. Thanks, Ruben. I hope that's true. Yeah, same. Uh, unfortunately, they don't stay together for the rest of her life, but I don't really have much information okay. about it beyond that. But like, I, I hope he yeah. said it and meant it at the time. Oh, yeah. 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 I don't mind if they broke up later. I just hope he supported her at this time. Yeah. So on the 10th of May, Lucy was released from prison. As a condition of her probation, she was required to dress as a man, although she didn't abide by this condition. And as far as I'm aware, she continued to dress and present as a woman for the rest of her life. Well, good, as she should. Yeah. yeah. 
For a brief time, she seems to have integrated herself back into Oxnard life. The following month after her release, for example, the press courier reported that she held a political rally and barbecue. Oh, nice. How long was she in prison for? Uh, so she went in in December and she got out in May, so she didn't oh, okay. do the full year. Okay. Okay. A Mrs. Andrew Habaker of the County Democratic Women's Organization spoke at her barbecue, but Lucy stressed that she was less concerned about convincing people what specific political party to vote for and more concerned about convincing them to vote at all saying it's important that everyone go to the polls regardless of whom they vote for it's the people's privilege good good yeah i just yeah. wanted to let you all know that <laughs> yeah yeah i'm glad if you're in america vote yeah if you're yeah. in australia vote too but it's compulsory yeah. <laughs> it is like very targeted at australians to have a barbecue where she says you should vote yeah that's what we do yes. that's yeah. what we did one week ago we with did. great success with great success. it was fantastic it was incredible but yeah for americans who don't know we have sausage sizzles at our polling places and we call it democracy sausage yes <laughs> since this is an american barbecue they did not have sausages i'm sorry yeah well that's... they had barbecue beef that's probably better frankly <laughs> like <laughs> yeah like, sausages are good but like american barbecue is probably like yeah more high-end food i guess american barbecue is like a whole thing yeah it's like, australian like... barbecue is like a different cultural experience <laughs> yeah. but like sausages you know they're like the deli meat of yeah. Like, <laughs> what's in your sausage? You just don't know. Yeah. I wanted to note a little bit, and we'll talk a bit more about this later on, on how the papers reported on Lucy's barbecue. It's noted in the opening sentence of the short article about her barbecue that Lucy is, quote, a successful coloured female impersonator who calls herself Mrs. Reuben Anderson. Whether the word successful describes her success as an individual in the community or her success as a female impersonator, I don't know. Don't love it either way. And the article does continue to use male pronouns throughout for Lucy, but it also uses the name Lucy throughout and offers no further comment about her sex or her trial or anything. It's just the opening sentence to situate you with who Lucy is, and then it's actually all about her barbecue. And it spends as much time listing what was served at the barbecue, if not more, than it does on her gender. Well, go on then. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote it down because I knew you'd ask. (laughs) They had barbecue beef. Uh Okay. They had beans. What Mm, kind of beans? I don't know what kind of beans they have in American barbecues. Yeah. Potato salad. And then beer and cocktails. That sounds pretty great. We should reenact. But yeah, so like, as important as the food is, I guess we should probably talk about the gender. How she's being spoken about in the papers. Yeah. So that kind of does potentially signify a bit of a shift on the part of the community towards her even if it's not one that's coming with necessarily negativity. Yeah, yeah. And that presumably had a bit of a toll on her. Yeah, no, I presume it did. Then Lucy was called back yet again to court to face her fraud charges for cashing Ruben's allotment checks as his wife. Leave her alone. Did these all have to happen in a different court? Like, did some happen at the county level and one at the state level and one at the federal level? Is <laughs> yeah. that why they all had to happen separately? At yeah. that point, she's filled out a bingo card and she should get a little gift. Yeah, yeah I, think I so. agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, they were all separate charges. They're all in separate courts. Yeah. Yeah. Is this, like, costing her a lot of money? Um, I actually have no idea. That was not mentioned in anything I read, but that's a very good point. Okay. Is her business still running? Her business does seem to be still running. Okay. But, like, three yeah. court cases is gonna... Yeah, yeah, obviously. Three yeah. court cases is just a lot of court cases. Yeah, yeah, I didn't read anything that mentioned her having to sell anything or her being financially hard up because of all these court cases, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. Maybe she was okay. just, um... Oh, rich lady. Very wealthy. She's also definitely being supported by her community so like we mentioned that her niece and a couple of other women helped post her bail and there's also some comments about her sister and another niece being at the trial or one of the trials and i think also paying bail at another time i'm glad so she does have people helping her out and supporting her too Reuben, Lucy's husband, was also tried for fraud with regard to the allotment checks. He was given 18 months prison for sending the checks to Lucy, and Lucy received a sentence of another year in jail and a $900 fine. After serving that sentence, Lucy seems once again to have returned her life in Oxnard, including running her business, as you asked, Irene. This, in August 1948, would lead to her being accused of violating the terms of her 10-year probation term for perjury. This went to court, with the ultimate outcome in March 1949 being that Lucy actually had her probation lifted on the condition that she stay out of Oxnard for a year. And the way this is talked about in modern articles, I would say, is this is often very much simplified and they'll sort of say, Lucy was 
arrested, discovered to be trans, and kicked out of Oxnard for the rest of her life. And that's not what happened. Lucy was arrested. She had several trials, during which time she continued to live in Oxnard, and then she was asked to leave Oxnard for a year as a condition of having her probation lifted. Okay. So it's quite a different situation to Lucy was kicked out of her hometown for being trans. Obviously, it's- it kind of practically ends up the same, but... Yeah, Lucy did have to leave Oxnard ultimately as a consequence of being outed as a trans woman, but... There is a difference. Yeah, there, yeah. yeah. There's definitely a difference um, there. Also, like, that is kind of saying, but after you can come back and just live here. Yeah. Like, yeah. Even if logistically she can't, that's not the same as just her being, like, banished forever. Yeah, yeah. And she she never lives in Oxnard again, but she does maintain relationships with people in Oxnard. So she moves to LA. People in Oxnard visit her. She visits them and so on. Mm. Okay. So I wanted to talk a bit now about the reaction of her community to Lucy's outing and subsequent trials, mm-hmm. which I've been preventing you from talking about mm-hmm. until this moment. Yeah. <laughs> So we've already mentioned that she had some support from her family, notably two nieces and her sister. And there's also mentions elsewhere in the papers of a group of what the paper calls Negro woman companions who sat by Lucy throughout her trial and generally supported her. Well, I'm glad that she has a support network. Yeah, she does. Beyond these people who seem to be close friends or family, a notable aspect of the community response is how unwilling the people of Oxnard were to condemn Lucy's actions or even sort of speculate much about her actions. The trial was one of the biggest things to happen in Oxnard for some time. It's very consistently reported in the Oxnard papers, the Ventura papers, which as I mentioned is the county capital, if that's how Americans call that. And even in the LA papers, as well as having a feature in Time magazine. So I'm not going to pretend that they weren't, you know, following this story with interest, but they were also following it with some respect for Lucy. One thing that I found interesting was there was a lack of the kind of discussions that I might have expected in the 40s about things like Lucy's psychological motivations or her psychological state or any attempt to diagnose Lucy or explain her actions in any way. Yeah, that is quite interesting, actually. Closest I saw to a guess at Lucy's personal motivations was one common in the Oxnard press courier that, quote, let psychologists puzzle over the significance of the long pretense. Someone could write a book about that. That's it. anyone? No. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Someone could. Someone could. Okay. In October 1945, so this is the month when Lucy was first arrested, the Oxnard Press Courier noted that while Lucy was, quote, completely male in sex and had been arrested as John Doe because they didn't know any male name to put the records under, the paper says, nevertheless, as Lucy, she'll be referred to in the columns of the Press Courier until the rightful name is revealed. This supposed rightful name, that is Lucy's birth name, was revealed by Lucy as part of her testimony in her November perjury trial, but I don't believe I ever saw it used in any of the papers after that day that it was first reported on. Instead, the press courier continued to refer to Lucy as Lucy, having noted in October that we call him Lucy because Oxnard will never think of him otherwise. They do, as you can see from that quote, use he, him pronouns more often for Lucy, but they're very inconsistent and there are some articles that use she, her even exclusively. So from the mention of her being like, I can't remember exactly what they said, of being male, yeah. it doesn't seem like this is a case where she has successfully convinced the community that she is intersex and therefore predominantly or ultimately a woman. It seems like they kind of understand, even if they don't have the language or quite the understanding that we would have, that she is a trans woman. And Mm. then it's like, yeah, but like she's a woman. Yeah. And like the defense did argue that she was intersex in her trial, Mm. but that seems to have only been the argument they chose to use from perhaps from a legal perspective as Mm -hmm. the one that may be most likely to be successful. As you saw from Lucy's own speech in the trial, that's not how she frames it and that's not how anyone else talking about Lucy really frames it. Yeah. They all seem to understand that Lucy is a trans woman, although they don't use that word. Yeah. I do think it's very interesting that they didn't get into any of that Freudian speculation that you would expect of Mm. 1940s newspapers interacting with trans people. Yeah, like the papers don't really speculate about her possibly being intersex. They also don't really talk about her sexuality at all. Yeah, and they don't make any weird comments about her childhood or her parents or... No. They're just straight up like, yeah, maybe she has reasons for doing this. I don't know. Someone can think about that. Yeah. I was very surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think like a lot of the time when we talk about queer people, like records of them becoming more clear and groups of them becoming, you know, more easily able to congregate Mm. and stuff, we do really focus queer histories on the city Mm. and kind of have this understanding that it's easier to be queer or to be, in this case, trans Mm. specifically in the city because of that. And 
anonymity. Yeah. But it looks here like you know, it's just the opposite. The fact that she's known in this community is yeah. what saves her in this regard. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's just, this is just, I guess, a general comment. Mm. Like, that's one of those things that is often true about marginalised people, that the strongest, most outspoken opponents of marginalised groups are people with the least interaction with Mm. them a lot Mm. of the time. Yeah, that's true. And I guess, you know, we talked a bit about how these people don't have, like, a way to say Lucy is trans. Like, they obviously don't know to say Lucy is a trans woman. And they may not have that much frame of reference to even think about trans people as a group they're more just thinking about lucy well we know lucy lucy's a nice lady okay turns out she was born a man that's all right i guess they also have been kind of primed to be like look just because lucy's in trouble with the law it doesn't mean that reflects on her like we've (laughs) practiced supporting lucy despite the fact that she gets repeatedly arrested so really this isn't too different from what we've been doing this whole time anyway (laughs) yeah 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 and that's another thing that i wanted to mention is that the local papers, when talking about Lucy in other contexts after this time, don't really dwell on the fact that she's trans, and sometimes they don't even mention the fact that she's trans. Like, it's obviously in the scheme of things that have happened to Lucy, it's almost just, you know, this is another thing that Lucy's done. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like on the list of 16 things Lucy has been arrested for. Yeah. yeah. In January 1946, for example, so this is even when her trials were still ongoing, she was called to testify in a case about police corruption, which is totally unrelated to her other trials. Oh, God. Like, just (laughs) give her a week off. Yeah. So a Press Courier article about this barely mentions her gender, or barely mentions her being trans, I should say, except for a single line explaining why Lucy gave her current address as prison. Just prison. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think specifically because it happened in the, uh, at that time she was in the jail in Oxnard. And they said, where do you live? And she said, here. Because she was at the courthouse, which is next to the jail. Oh, (laughs) You're in my living room, actually. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there's one brief sentence that explains why that is. But otherwise, that article consistently refers to Lucy with she, her pronouns, and uses the name Lucy without any caveats Mm. or scare quotes or anything like that. Similarly, years after Lucy's death, a 1988 letter to the Ventura County Star Free Press on the same topic of police corruption notes that Miss Lucy Hicks, Queen of Oxnard's Red Light District, had an inn and was tipped off before police raids, and by the time the sheriff arrived, the booze, drugs, and girls were gone. And there's no mention in that letter at all that she was trans or ever went on trial related to that. Putting these two letters side by side is quite funny because it's like, Lucy was called to testify in a trial about police corruption. Anyway, Lucy did a bunch of corruption with the police. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Lucy's yeah. there at like, the stand being like, oh yeah, they're hella corrupt. <laughs> Ask me how I know. I think somebody else had accused some police of being corrupt and Lucy was testifying to say she had never given payoffs to those policemen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, which ones? Oh, those ones. No. <laughs> that guy? Not that guy. No. No. <laughs> Talking about how her community saw her again, as the Oxnard Press Courier noted at the time of Lucy's trial, quote, as far as Oxnard is concerned, Lucy seems to have lost few, if any, friends. The story of the unmasking of the famed town character is being repeated daily, and with it, tributes are paid to Lucy's cooking and character. Man, she would have been in so much trouble if she was not extremely good at cooking. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. A different life. Like, how good must these roles be? We need to find out. Irene and I are going on a trip to Oxnard. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like the fact that the entire community is like, oh, Lucy's gender, not important as long as I get my dinner rolls. (laughs) I think we need to put a call out on Twitter for anyone living in Ventura to look in their family cookbooks. Oh, in Oxnard, sorry. Mm. This attitude also pans out in oral histories conducted in the 70s and 80s that mention Lucy. So I want to give a shout out again to the Museum of Ventura County for doing these oral histories and then scanning them. So something I noticed again and again in these was when asked how they felt about or understood Lucy's gender, residents of Oxnard barely engaged with the question and instead focused on Lucy's skills as a cook and the role she played in her community. So, for example, when asked by an interviewer to, quote, tell us about Lucy, what she did, and what she wanted, everything, Oxnard resident Laura O'Reilly Dowd briefly comments, I'll guess she was a queer, and then mainly moves on to focus on Lucy's fashion sense. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then when asked if Lucy was really a man, Laura responds, yes, but she could cook the grandest dinners, and adds that, boy, she was good, everybody liked her. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Yeah. I guess there's, like... 
I mean, who are these people who are saying this? Like, is there still, should we still be kind of noting like a bit of a class and race divide? Like are all these people, people that she knew or are these people who are like employing her? I don't know who Laura O'Reilly okay. Dowd is. I have another quote from um, William Clark, who was the chief of police in Oxnard. He was the chief of police after the time of Lucy's trial. But I think he knew Lucy in that context. Yeah. He similarly, when asked to talk about Lucy, starts his answer with, Lucy Hicks was always considered a female and she worked for different families in Oxnard. She was an excellent cook. There aren't many black people in Oxnard. Mm-hmm. Oxnard is predominantly a white and Latino town. And from what I can tell, just based on their names, and obviously that doesn't tell you everything, these are white people talking about Lucy. I don't know about the class relationships Mm. for some of them, but yeah, it is going to be a factor. William Clark goes on to tell a story of how when she was arrested on charges around alcohol or sex work, Lucy would invariably go to the prison kitchen to cook for staff and other prisoners while she was in prison. And only after telling that story does he even bring up her queerness. Something else that I noted in reading these oral histories, and I think there's probably a lot more to explore here, is that there's some suggestion in some of these oral histories that people in Oxnard knew or suspected that Lucy was trans before her arrest and that they simply didn't care. That would not surprise me. William Clark, this policeman that I just mentioned, commented, Lucy was a little queer, but we never knew the true story, and then adds, she had some whiskers, but we always accepted that. Paul Lubbersher, who worked as a delivery boy for the local butcher, similarly recalled coming round to Lucy's house to drop off meat early in the morning and finding Lucy unshaven. He comments in the interview that she was the only woman he ever saw with a five o'clock shadow, but when asked if he suspected she was a man, responds, Lucy was just Lucy and that she was always very friendly and nice to him. Similarly, Laura O'Reilly Dowd, when asked about how Lucy's sex was discovered, responds that we all knew it. But, well, that was Lucy, you know. And she notes that Lucy continued working for the Donlan family after Mrs. Donlan knew her assigned sex. I'm not clear whether this refers to after Lucy's trial or after an earlier time when Mrs. Donlan discovered that Lucy was trans. But either way, this quote is interesting for showing that Lucy was able to continue her work and specifically very feminine coded work as Mm -hmm. a cook and housekeeper after the community knew that she was trans. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear, as you suggested, Eli, that their personal connection with Lucy did strongly influence the reactions of people in Oxnard and their acceptance of Lucy. And we can compare this to when Lucy's story appeared in non-local contexts. Oh no. This is not going to be too bad, or at least not too long. (laughs) So it was picked up by Time magazine, Mm. and it was also picked up by Afro-American magazine in late 1945. Mm. And there's much more focus in these articles on mockery and shock value of Lucy's story. Yeah. Afro-American featured a cartoon alongside their article, which had an image of a woman standing next to a sign which read, Beware, not what you think. Time magazine featured an illustration of a bearded person in a dress, and their angle was that they recount the biography of Lucy, referring to her as Lucy with female pronouns throughout, and then a final line reads, Lucy was a man, clearly designed to shock readers. Um, And then they just, like, told an entire life story about Lucy. Oh, like... (laughs) <laughs> fairly normal member of her community and then at the end they were like so at least he was a man yeah yeah that sounds so like poorly written if their goal is to capitalize on shock value like yeah. surely it's not really managing to do that very effectively like surely yeah. a lot of the readers were just like wait what that's, that's <laughs> sort of what i think like literally if that's a thousand word article then 990 of those words are, and then she worked as a domestic servant and her recipe for custard tart was fantastic. <laughs> people generally don't read all of a thing that's put in front of them. Like no. a lot of people would pick up a magazine, read half an article and go, oh, well, this woman's life, you know, whatever. Okay. And move on. And it's going to be like, huh, did you read that article about that Lucy lady? Yeah. Okay. Mm. She was just cooking some yeah. food. Like, you'd think it'd come, like, halfway through and then they'd go into the whole, like, you know, she somehow managed to deceive a man into marrying her and, like, you know, yeah, yeah. string that out. But instead they were like, oh, I'm forward, short on the copy. I guess I'll just be, like, a jerk about it. Yeah, yeah, pretty um, much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the Times article doesn't even mention, like, her trials or anything because obviously that would straight away reveal their punchline. This idiot can't even be a transphobic probably. <laughs> Yeah, like <laughs> exactly. What are you doing? It's, it's, it's a bizarre. I actually read that article, uh, and I was just like, "Wait, where's the rest of the article?" <laughs> that was how I felt too. I was like, "Oh, so is it on the next page?" Like, are you huh? when you said it finishes with Lucy as a man, is that you seriously? That's what happened word for word. Yes. They just described her biography, and then they were like, "Final line: Lucy is a man." Yes, that's a direct quote. Like, and there was nothing after that. <laughs> no. 
And then, like, in a subsequent issue of Time magazine, they do sort of say, by the way, people were really into now article on Lucy, so here's some follow-up. She was tried, or they probably say he, because they're pretty transphobic in this instance. She was tried for perjury, and this is what happened to her, and, like, ha, 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 good on all those readers who recommended she be nominated for Time's Man of the Year. Good joke. So yeah. much people read it and were like, did you forget to like, write the rest of your article? Like, do you want to do that again? <laughs> yeah, actually, we do. Let's pretend that was on purpose. Yeah, I don't really know. I don't uh, really know. They didn't really publish many of... I don't think there were any, in fact, published letters in response to that article. Yeah. Like, obviously, what they say later about it indicates that some people like, obviously did get what yeah. they were trying to say. But I feel like at a time where there was less visibility for trans people, a lot of people just wouldn't have yeah. necessarily even taken anything away from that. Yeah, yeah, they would have kind of just been like, what do you mean? Unless, yeah. What like, are you trying to tell me? This story was already famous enough that this was known and you were meant to read it knowing that a punchline was coming. I don't think it would have been. Like, it had made it into LA papers, but it hadn't made yeah. it into any like, papers outside. No yeah. So I don't think it would have been. Well, that's extremely weird. Yeah. <laughs> it is quite weird. Yeah. In comparison, the Oxnard papers stress how Lucy's community continued to support her. So in October, the press career wrote, there seems to be no spirit of community condemnation of Lucy and credits that to the fact that she's so well known by her community. To them, the most serious accusation that really comes up against her is the fact that she evaded the draft. And they comment that folks who sent their own sons to war are not likely to be patient with one who evaded a call to service by posing as a woman. But that's the strongest condemnation of Lucy I saw in the Oxnard papers, Mm. basically. And that's also someone saying, like, hypothetically, yeah. this is a criticism that could be made of her, yeah. not that they're taking her to task for this personally. Yeah, yeah that it's like them being like, I guess I understand why that's a crime. Yeah, I see why some people would okay. be upset by this if their sons were off fighting. After Lucy was asked to leave Oxnard, she moved to LA. I read several sources that said she moved with Reuben. Reuben remarried a woman named Cleota Rogers in 1949, so if they did move to LA together, the relationship ended soon after. Lucy maintained a relationship, as I mentioned before, with people in Oxnard. William Clark, so he's that uh, chief of police who gave the oral history, recalls that at some stage in the late 1940s or early 1950s, she returned to Oxnard and that she spoke to him about the possibility of adopting a child, a young boy about two years old, about whom we don't have any more information. Hmm. William was unable to help her with the adoption, and when she tried to bribe a police officer to assist her, William reported her presence in Oxnard to the parole judge who ordered her to leave town. William comments that they took the baby away from her a short time after that, which suggests to me that Lucy did already have some kind of custody of this child, but she never formally adopted him, and I have no idea who he was. Okay. Well, that's unsatisfying. It is unsatisfying. Even William, however, notes his respect for Lucy when talking about this and his reluctance to report her, and it seems he feels that his hand was forced when she tried to offer another cop a bribe, Mm. rather than that he just wanted Lucy out of town. Yeah. And he comments, She was good and charitable to everybody that needed some help, and it was unfortunate that she couldn't stay on the right side of the law. Everybody did like her, and everybody hated to see her get in trouble again. And he concludes his account of Lucy by commenting that, She was a wonderful person. We did admire her. It's like a a real testimony to how decent this community has been to her, that even this cop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like in the middle of getting her thrown out of town for trying to bribe a cop. He's like, no, we all respected her so much. Uh, Yeah. And like, even like none of these comments are even patronizing, really. Like he says he admired her. Yeah. 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 I'm glad we've done this one last of our kind of three trans trial episodes, because I do feel like in a lot of ways it has been the like least soul crushing. Yeah, it's actually quite a positive story. We had an upward trajectory with those. (laughs) Yeah, obviously, like, she was publicly out and she did go through all these court cases and that would have been very harrowing for her. Mm. But overall, it's, you know, a much more positive story than it could have been or than a lot of trans stories we've discussed before. I mean, I think a lot of that is just that in a lot of the others, they've gone through this, like, extensive process to prove their, like, physical... Mm. intersex where this just didn't really happen as much Mm. for lucy where her entire community was like this just doesn't seem relevant to us yeah and i think that is a big difference which i think we've kind of mentioned is that lucy's never really trying to prove that she's a cis woman or that she's an intersex person who you know has always lived as a woman yeah like lucy's only ever trying to say i'm a woman because i've lived my life as a woman and her community is just saying yeah okay that holds up yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Lucy passed away from heart failure in LA on the 23rd of September, 1954. She was in her late 60s. Her niece, Willie May, reported the death. The Oxnard press curator writes about Lucy's death and notes that despite her outing and trial, the people of Oxnard continued to respect her and think of her as a woman. To quote... Nobody in Oxnard mocked Lucy. Her friends, both white and coloured, offered their sympathy and still referred to Lucy as her. And Lucy continued to wear women's clothes, continued to call herself Lucy Hicks Anderson, and that was the name she used when she died. Which I thought was a very nice reference back to Lucy's own speech where she pretty much, she said, you know, I've lived my life as a woman and I intend to die as a woman and I intend to die as Lucy. Mm. And she did get to do that. Oh, yeah, that is nice. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find the rest of our podcasts on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you go to find your podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and leave us a review because that really helps us reach a wider audience. If you want more Queer as Fact content in between episodes, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. And if you want to communicate with us directly, you can email us at queerasfact at gmail.com or you can write to our PO box. You can find the address of our P.O. box and all those other things I've mentioned on our website, which is queerasfact.com. If you want to support our podcast financially, you can become a patron and as well as providing support to Queer as Fact, that will give you perks like receiving our regular monthly newsletter, having a chance to vote on episode topics and getting some free Queer as Fact merch and other perks. And if you just want the Queer as Fact merch itself, you can go to our Redbubble store and buy some Queer as Fact merch there. We'll be back on the 1st of July with an episode chosen by our patrons where Jason will be talking to us about the 1926 lesbian play The Captive. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.